BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. What happens when a prominent neuroscientist finds out there's something wrong with his own brain? In this episode, we explore the shocking discovery that our guest made when he realized after years of studying the brains of psychopaths, that he had the exact same brain structure. We unwind the twisted narrative and wild conclusions that come from this riveting discovery and much more with our guest, Dr. James Fallon. Do you need more time? Time for work? Time for thinking and reading? Time for the people in your life? Time to accomplish your goals? This was the number one problem our listeners outlined, and we created a new video guide that you can get completely for free when you sign up and join our email list. It's called How You Can Create Time for the Things That Really Matter in Life. You can get it completely for free when you sign up and join the email list at successpodcast.com. You're also going to get exclusive content that's only available to our email subscribers. We recently pre-released an episode and an interview to our email subscribers a week before it went live to our broader audience. And that had tremendous implications because there was a limited offer in there with only 50 available spots that got eaten up by the people who were on the email list first. With that same interview, we also offered an exclusive opportunity for people on our email list to engage one-on-one for over an hour with one of our guests in a live exclusive interview just for email subscribers. There's some amazing stuff that's available only to email subscribers that's only going on if you subscribe and sign up to the email list. You can do that by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're driving around right now, if you're out and about and you're on the go, you don't have time, just text the word SMARTER to the number 44222. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. In our previous episode, 
we discussed a proven way of overcoming the self-doubt, negativity, and insecurity that hold you back. And we showed you how to ultimately become your best self using a unique and unlikely strategy. We looked at legends from pro athletes to Martin Luther King and uncovered how they use the exact same strategy to get into the zone when it counted. We discussed all of this and much more with our previous guest, Todd Herman. If you want to easily crush what's holding you back, listen to our previous episode. Now for our interview with James. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Dr. James Fallon. Jim is a professor of psychiatry and human behavior at UC Irvine and an internationally renowned neurobiologist. He's the author of the bestseller, The Psychopath Inside, a neuroscientist's personal journey into the dark side of the brain. He's lectured worldwide on neuro law and the brains of psychopathic killers and dictators. His work has been featured in NPR, CBS, ABC, and numerous science specials. Jim, welcome to the Science of Success. Matt. Very good to be here. Thanks for the invite, man. Well, we're excited to have you on the show, and, and there's so many interesting things to touch on and discuss. I'd love to open it up with your personal story and your own personal journey. It's so fascinating, and I think really lays the groundwork for getting into some of the meat of the lessons you've learned and, and the work you've done with your research. Sure. You know, I've always been like a hobbit scientist at like a small lab. And I pretty much knew I was going to be a scientist when I was like seven or eight years old. I really did. And and I, I met the girl and dated, had a first date with a girl who I ended up, and now I still live with her. She was 11 and I was 11 years old. And we went to a dance together. So I've been kind of set in my life, <laughs> you know, from very early on. And so it's been a, a quite a modest life, I think. And I've been a professor ever since I can remember. I, I, was, uh, I went to St. Michael's College for my BS in you know, biology and chemistry. And then I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and got a degree in psychophysics and psychology. And then to the University of Illinois Medical School for my doctorate. And then out here to California, UC San Diego and La Jolla for my postdoc. And then started out as a professor in 1975, and I've been here ever since. I'm like a potted plant here. So, I've, and I've had, you know, I think a, a successful career and a successful, happy life, and a you know, big family, and we have a great time. So, there's nothing remarkable there at all, except just sort of a regular guy that that did okay. So everything uh, went smoothly until about well, I don't know, 2005, 2006, and then um, Gandalf showed up at my door. Tell me more about that. Well, I had been looking at the brain scans of serial killers, mostly psychopathic murderers, but also impulsive murderers, since about 1989. And I was doing it for ex-students who are now in psychiatry and, and radiology. And they asked me to look at these PET scans, positron emission tomography brain scans, of guys who were murderers and now were in the penalty phase of their trials. So they wanted you know, they all basically wanted to find, have somebody say, hey, you know, the devil made me do it. That is, there was something organically wrong with their brain, and therefore they shouldn't undergo the death penalty at that time. And so I did those every year, one or two a year, and I didn't even notice it was just such a peripheral thing in my research. But I read a lot of scans, thousands of scans for all sorts of people with all sorts of diseases, including psychopathy. And, you know, I did that until around 2005. Then I got a whole load of these scans to look at from different uh, researchers, different psychiatrists and lawyers, attorneys. And so I told them, just send me a bunch of them and uh, don't tell me who is what. 
anybody who's a murderer and mix it in with normal people and people with schizophrenia, et cetera. And I, so I got these whole pile of them, about 70 of them to look at. And at the end of that analysis, um, it was like 1975, I found that there was a pattern. And, and, and so nobody had ever really described a pattern before. So I started giving talks and I wrote a paper about it in 2005 or six uh, at a law school about the pattern of what a psychopathic brain looks like. And that was a new thing, and it was interesting because I, I read patterns. That's what my work is about. But at the same time, and it's purely coincidentally, we were doing clinical study on the genetics of Alzheimer's disease. So we were doing PET scans and EEGs and genetics of people with Alzheimer's looking for what gene had not been discovered that was interacting with the APOE gene, you know, which was known to be a risk factor. So in the course of that, uh, we were finished with the study, and uh, but we needed more normals. We had all the patients we needed, and so we needed them quickly. So I got my family. This was my first mistake. I got my family, including myself, to get the PET scans done and uh, you, you know do the genetics and the psychometrics for this Alzheimer's study. So everybody came in that week, and some flew in from New York and other places, and we did the study. And at the end of that. I was sitting at my desk looking at, I had all those pile of scans from all these murderers and the technicians came in and said, we have the PET scans from your family. And so I quickly looked at them. I know I've seen so many that I kind of know if there's something jumps out as a pattern that is abnormal. And I went through this pile of about eight or nine scans and they all looked normal. It was, it was great because my wife was worried because her whole family had, has, many of them had died of Alzheimer's. And she went along with it all. She said she was quite brave about it. And she said, okay, I'll do it because it may help our kids and grandkids. So at any rate, I was looking through and everything was normal. So I was really quite happy about that. Uh, and then I got to the last scan and the last scan, I pulled it out and I, I said, and I called in the technicians. I said, guys, that's really funny. You, you took one of the psychopathic murders and you slipped it into my family scans and ha ha, you know, because you, you screw around even in labs, right? You, you don't keep it screwing around, you know, you're supposed to tell the joke. But at any rate, they go, no, 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 that's one of your family. I said, whoever this is should not be walking around in open society. It's a very dangerous person, probably, because it looked just like the psychopathic pattern I had seen in these in these murderers, too, and other psychopaths. And they said, no, it's, it's really your family. So I had to break the code by peeling back the cover on the name. The name was mine. And so I sat there and just kind of stared at it and, and got a good chuckle. And I said, you know, and, and they were laughing too. And I said, this is good. I said, this is, yeah, this is the joke, right? You got a scientist studying psychopathic killers. He gets a brain scan done and it's him. You know, Gandalf shows up at the door and it's him. So, I mean, I saw that and I just kind of laughed because I know who I am, right? And I'm like a pretty regular guy. I still have my Teamsters card, for Christ's sake. And so that, I kind of didn't say anything except, you know, years later, and I remembered this, a couple of years after that, I brought the, I went home that week after I was looking at the scans, and I told my wife, and she, and I said, you know, the damnedest thing happened. I got all these scans of our family, and everybody's, including yours, is quite normal, which is great. I said, but mine looked just as, like the worst psychopath, pure pattern I'd seen and she said something that was really kind of odd. She goes, it doesn't surprise me. Now, I know when she screws around, you know, she's messing with me. But she wasn't. She was quite serious. But I kind of just let it go and figured what I think any scientist would. Since I'm okay, my theory must be wrong. Well, it turns out my theory is not wrong. This is one case where I, I wish it was. 
But we were so busy. And I, I had just started, I had raised about $7 million for a, a stem cell company because we had found that adult stem cells in an animal's brain or a person's brain are there and can be activated in, in adulthood. And this was not embryonic stem cells. It was, it was uh, you know, these were the person's own adult stem cells. So I was so busy finishing up the patents and raising money for that. I really didn't even care about these scans, about my psychopathic scan. And, and people have a hard time believing it, but I really did. And I figured, well, you know, something's wrong with the scans. Or, but uh, I was just too busy. And we were writing up other patents for schizophrenia and, and Alzheimer's and writing papers. And we're very busy at the time with this other important, you know, really more important work. So this tertiary stuff about the psychopathic brain and these killers was really just a, really a side tertiary issue. So at any rate, a while later, I got the genetics back and the genetics showed the same thing. That is, my family was kind of an average of all the high and low level alleles, forms of these genes like warrior genes. And, you know, for each complex adaptive behavior, there's about 15 or more genes that regulate it. And the chances are, it's like a casino, that if you roll the dice of these 15 or 20 genes, the chances are you're going to get an average number of high-level and low-level acting genes. So you may get some high-violence-related genes and low, but most people are in the middle. That's what we call normal. Uh, some people get none of them, and they're very passive people. But in the case of mine, I got all of them. And so I got all these forms of these highly aggressive genes that are called warrior genes, and also all the genes associated with uh, low emotional empathy, high cognitive empathy, low emotional empathy, and low anxiety. So I'd had these things that are associated with psychopathy, and the brain pattern looked just like it. So I had both you know, biological markers, the main biological markers of antisocial personality disorder, that is psychopathy, but I was like a regular guy, so it didn't make sense. And after this, I was asked to give a, a TED talk. And that was a couple of years after. And in the TED talk, they said, well, tell us about something that's interesting. So I was going to give them the story of the, starting a stem cell company in an area of science that wasn't popular, that is endogenous stem cells. Everybody wanted to have engineering. Everybody likes to engineer stuff to you know, force cells, embryonic stem cells, into becoming brain cells, which is great, but that's not what we were doing. So I said, look, I got the story about how hard it is to kind of buck the system in science. And they said, do you have anything more personal? And this is my second mistake was that I said, well, actually, there's this other screwball thing that I don't know if anybody would be interested in it. And I told them the story about the brain scans and, and me and all this stuff in my family. And they go, that's it. So I said, oh, boy. And so I ended up giving that TED Talk. And then there was a lot of interest in it. You know, I don't know anything about marketing, but I do know that overnight, if you have a some sort of video with the keywords are psychopathic killer, you'll get 30,000 hits in about an hour. <laughs> and so that's what General Electric and the TED people put as keywords. So my colleagues were calling me and saying, you just got 30 and then 40, 50,000 hits. So quickly we got up to a million hits on my TED talk. And I guess I think it was more about the, um, <laughs> you know, the keywords that they used, good marketers. So at any rate, I started to get lots of calls from people. I got a call from uh, the showrunner for Criminal Minds, that is Simon Mirren. And he was, a, you know, he and another guy were the, the head showrunners, writers, executive producers of the Criminal Minds. He says, I know what you're talking about. He says, you're not talking about yourself. You're talking about the effect of long-term violence in neighborhoods and in countries. I said, absolutely right. He, he got it. I couldn't believe it. 
So he says, you got to come up and act in it. So I acted in uh, the 100th, or I think it's the 99th episode of Criminal Minds called Outfoxed. And he put me in there to just blab away. I'm not an actor, but he goes, no, no, you'll be fine. Just, just say your stuff. And we've become good friends since then. I work with him and we try to put shows together, et cetera. But that was an outcome of that. And then I got approached by three literary agents from New York and I chose one. It was the one that had just done Obama's book. And actually she, <laughs> the head editor was smarting a little bit because that was the book where it said that Obama was born in Kenya. And so she was very careful about vetting my, in, in doing research on my book. So when I was writing the book, I was living in this little 500-year-old chateau. It wasn't a chateau. It was like a block house up in the Alps in the northern Italy uh, that my friend who was a psychiatrist, his family's owned forever. And so I, was, so I, was, I, I wrote it there uh, the year afterwards. And it wasn't until 2010 I was asked to give a talk, a public talk at the university with the ex-prime minister of Norway. So I was at the University of Oslo and I gave a public talk with the prime minister and he had just come out and he had admitted that, admitted, he told the country that he as prime minister was just diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Now for a European, especially a Northern European, especially a Northern European politician to admit that he had some psychiatric disorder, that took a lot of balls, and I was I was quite impressed with his uh, with that. And so I flew over and gave the talk with him. He gave his personal story, and I gave the story of how we di we diagnose uh, people and how we find out basically how we find out how you what the genes are and what the brain patterns are with all different disorders, including bipolar and depression, but also schizophrenia. And But I had to use somebody's data to show how we did it. So I had to use mine. Ethically, I could only use mine. So I showed all my data and all of my behaviors throughout my life. And at the end of the talk, the, a guy stood up and he was the head of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Oslo. He goes, well, thanks for that talk. That was good. He says, but we had, I got two things to say. First of all, you're a bipolar yourself. You don't know it. You're just up all the time. And Matt, you can see how I'm talking here. I'm trying to slow it down. But if the more I talk, I'll become very fast. And it's not just because I'm from New York. It's just I'm hypomanic. And that's part of uh, the definition of bipolar. The thing is, I just don't get down at all, which you don't have to be down in order to have bipolar. I never had heard this before. I'd heard that I was hypomanic from clinicians, but not you know bipolar. So that was interesting. And I said, okay. He said, the second thing we got, we want to talk to you afterwards. So after my talk, we met at the president, the University of Oslo's house, you know, for a reception. And so at it, the head of the Department of Psychiatry and other psychiatrists and psychologists, I was talking to him and having some wine and everything for a few hours. And at the end of that discussion, they said, you probably don't realize this, but you're probably right on the border of really being a psychopath. And I said, what the hell are you talking about? That was the first time I ever took it seriously, and that was the end of 2010. Uh, and that, so I went when I went home, I started to ask people individually, like my wife and then my kids and my brothers and sister and people really close to me and the psychiatrist who knew me well. I said, "What do you really think of me?" And I, and I said, "Don't be scared or anything like that. Just tell me the truth." And they kind of all told me the same thing that I do these psychopathic things, but I. Um, I don't seem dangerous, but um, I, I still do things that are psychopathic. So, okay. So that was kind of a surprise, and, and that led on to uh, the question of, 
if I had all of these traits, biological determinants of psychopathy, why was I just a regular guy? Because, you know, I don't even have a, an arrest. Well, I've been arrested, but I always talk the cops out of it, you know, growing up. And, I'll, you know, we always we used to get in all sorts of mischief. And they, they could cart my friends away. But I always have the, the cops always thought, well, he's just in it for the fun, which was true. So I never really got booked at all, ever. But, you know, it's as playful as most guys were, if you will. So at any rate, I really didn't quite understand it. But while I was writing that book, the two years later, you know, 2012, 2013 in Italy, two papers came out to show that the genes that were supposed to be warrior genes that had to do with the metabolism of serotonin, that if you have them and you're abused early in life between birth and about three years old, it's real bad news. And, and people who get that usually turn into psychopaths. So this was a case of epigenetics. That is, you have genes, but then they're changed. They're turned on forever, as opposed to just in the correct context of being turned on. Like, you know, you get me mad, I get mad, but I'm not mad all the time, or I'm not revenged all the time. So that made sense. But what made more sense is that if you were treated well, it had the opposite effect. So these warrior genes became resistance, resilience genes that kind of negated the other tendencies to become a psychopath. Well, I said, well, this is it. And then it really made me reflect on my, how I was brought up, which was, I was brought up in a great family and all my grandparents and my aunts and uncles were wonderful. And I just, I just crazy about them and looking at all the pictures and the movies and just the memories was all this very positive stuff, but especially my, my mother and her sisters, these, they were all educated. They're Sicilians and they're educated uh, because they're, you know, their father, my grandfather, came from Sicily and very poor at 11 years old. And he lived on the streets in New York. And he just had to really make his way there. So he was completely uneducated. But he made a vow that if you ever had kids, his daughters would all go to college. And they did. And not only they went to college at a time when women didn't go to college much, but they also went on to graduate school, you know, either nursing or my mother went to business school. And so very hip people and very they're smart. And But they're wise, too. So my mother knew, and she admitted this to me a few years ago. She's 102 now, if you can believe it. Uh, but she admitted a few years back, she goes that she was quite worried about me, not the other kids, but about me because I was acting strangely when I was going through puberty, very dark sort of person. So one of the things she did without telling me is she told all my teachers to keep me busy. And so I ended up playing like four intercollegiate sports all through high school and college and they're you know kind of violent sports not violent you know, high contact sports uh, wrestling and, and uh, downhill skiing and, and uh, football and things like that and so I was always busy with these sports and if I wasn't in the sports I was in you know in in plays being acting or in the arts I, I was in music you know because I'm playing music so she kept me busy constantly and I guess it worked because she goes whenever you got bored it was trouble and this, this came, came back years later, because a, a few years ago when I was analyzed by two psychiatrists, and they didn't know this, but one of them said, well, here's a guy who has got all the thoughts and urges and dreams and everything, the mentations of a full-blown psychopath, but he just never acts them out. And it was kind of odd. He didn't understand how that happened, because I have apparently what I think about and my drives are quite psychopathic, which you don't know in your own brain. I just thought everybody had this. And they said, well, you just have a well-developed upper part of your prefrontal cortex that suppresses it all. So you have all these urges and you just never play, act them out, which is true. 
so my mother kind of knew this, but these, you know, this, this sort of drive I had that I had to be kept busy, which I always have. So that was kind of the, the fix I get. But I was also raised in this wonderful family. And so whatever genetic sort of proclivity I have, it was never epigenetically triggered. That is marked epigenetically so that these warrior genes are always on. Okay. And they're, they're not like that. I'm very competitive. Like a lot of people are very competitive and, and all our kids are. And my, my mother is, they're all killers in the sense of being, they can't lose. So we're all driven to succeed. Even my granddaughters, everybody's like that. You know, just the worst family to play Scrabble with or poker with because of this drive to always win no matter what. And so we have that, but but we don't have the drive to murder or to rape or do anything like that. But we're kind of a pain in the ass to play games with. It's a truly incredible journey going from being a neuroscientist who's studying the brains of psychopaths to discovering that you may be a borderline psychopath yourself. It's an incredible coincidence. It's stupid. It's really stupid when you think about it. But there it is. I mean, it's pure serendipity and purely a mistake of how I found out. But I'm able to function okay. But I, you know, I married a great woman who's very tolerant of my behaviors, and she knows who she is. So that was a key. And I was like, well, I, I, you know, I was born into the right family, and I ended up marrying somebody who was, who was very smart and very tolerant of my craziness, if you will. Not craziness, but I was like a wild guy in a way. Okay, and in in the sense, I'll give you the sense of wildness because it was. I don't think it was a big deal, but I'm just one of these guys. I went to St. Michael's College, and one of my classmates contacted me many, many years later. This was maybe about five years ago. We were there from 1965 to 69. And a couple of years ago, he he contacted me. I hadn't been in contact with him. And he goes, Jim, he goes, just I growing up, you know, when he was in his 20s, he says, I never like dated girls and women and then like brought him to a dinner and a movie. He didn't do that. He says, but one day he did. It was like 1978 or 79, ten, about 10 years after we graduated. And he's sitting in this movie and he's, he's halfway through the movie. He goes, I went to school with this guy. It's exact. He did all of the stuff, exactly the stuff. And, and, and of course it turned out to be animal house. And he was talking about Bluto because all of those things that Bluto did, I did. And so he thought that this guy, you know, the writers followed me around. And I said, look at Every school had a couple of those guys, you know, so everybody knows that guy. But that's how I was, you know, behavior, even though I was really academic, you know, obviously it was pretty academic all the way through my life. But I love to screw around and be a joker and and do the stuff that Bluto did, that John Belushi did in, in Animal House, exactly the same stuff. So it's that sort of stuff. It's, it's being slightly naughty, not being a bad guy, really. There's a lot of different things I want to unpack from from your story and your journey and your work. Maybe to start out, I'm actually curious to, to dig in a little bit around this conversation about genes and, and epigenetics. I'm somewhat familiar with this, but I'd love to explore and maybe explain for the listeners, what exactly do you mean when you say epigenetics and why don't genes always express themselves if they're present? Yeah, you know, every cell in your body has basically the same coding genes. And about in each cell, about five, seven percent of your genetic material is what people consider to be genetics, like a warrior gene or stress genes or control heart rate, et cetera. But the rest of it, so-called junk DNA, was years ago was found out and it didn't really um, by Barbara McClintock back in the 40s and 50s. 
They didn't understand what it meant, this junk DNA. Well, the junk DNA turns out to be all these regulators of genes and not the genes themselves. And so there's a whole group of these. And these regulators of the genes are where most of the action is. And there are regulators of the regulators, too. They're called transposons, which we study a lot about in for schizophrenia in our own lab. And, and so there are these, these regulators of genes, and the regulators have different forms. So some can be long or short. So if you have the long form, it's like a gas pedal that's on, like heavy. And if you have the light form of the gene, like low aggression gene, a warrior gene, that's the low allele form. And it's like a gas pedal that's turned on a lot. But then the regulators, if you add methyl groups to them, these little methyl groups, carbon with three hydrogens, you can add them to these regulators of the genes. And what happens then is that they're on all the time. So it's like having your foot on the pedal all the time. So you lose the context dependence of behaviors. So if you look at behaviors, for example, of psychopaths and narcissists and everything, those behaviors in and of themselves are not considered pathological if they're in the right context. It's nothing's wrong with murdering somebody if somebody's trying to murder you or murder your family, for example. So it's not the actual behavior, it's the context of the behavior. You know, having sex, there's nothing wrong with sex, but you know, you have sex at, at certain times with certain people, not all the time with everybody. And so if you have uh, these epigenetic marks, which the marks are the methyl groups, uh, basically, then these things are turned on all the time and you lose the context dependence of your behaviors. That's what's pathological. Now, that's one sort of explanation of epigenetics. It's like the notes are all there on the piano, but which ones are being played is the epigenetic part of it, right? So you're not always playing all the notes all the time. And, and so that's kind of the quick and dirty of it, of what epigenetics is. And one of the major epigenetic markers, uh, what does the marking, is, is stress and abuse. And so what's important for the elaboration of the, you know, the, the etiology of personality disorders, especially the pernicious ones, which are called the cluster B personality disorders, the dangerous ones like psychopathy and narcissistic personality disorders that have to do with how you treat other people, your interactions with other people, and what makes you a predator or not a predator on other people. Well, those genes can be turned on all the time, but the way they get turned on permanently is if you're abused early. So first of all, you have to have the forms of the genes that are like the high acting forms that are related to, for example, high violence or low emotional empathy or low anxiety. If you have the genes already, that's not pathological. But if you're abused or abandoned early in life, between birth and three years old, that permanently sets them in a high form. And so it's like, keeping the, it's like keeping the gas pedal all the time on. And so it, it's pretty much permanent. And that's what's pathological. So you have to have this, this interaction between early environment. It's not just any environment. It's early environment. And it usually has to do with abuse uh, with these, uh, the, the forms of the genes that, are, that can be dangerous. That, those two together is what makes the magic of these pathological personality disorders. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So you obviously had the benefit of the science, the research, actually looking at the brain scans and the genetic analysis. For an everyday person, how do you determine or notice or discover if somebody has psychopathic tendencies or if they are a psychopath? Yeah, for for somebody who is a not a damaged psychopath, because you know, a lot of the people I study, you know, the murderers, they're sloppy and, and they were hit over the head with pipes and abused drugs, etc. So not only were they psychopaths, but they also had brain damage, right? And these guys are usually caught early you know, as and teenagers. They start behaving poorly around, you know, even before, you know, before they're 12 or 13, some of them when they're five years old. And, but they usually get caught because they're sloppy. But there are psychopaths that do not have this other brain damage. And these guys, can, if they're smart, they're very hard to catch and very hard to sort out, that is to determine who they are. Now, I work with a group, uh, and one of the things I do is work with the oppositions in these countries that have dictators, North Korea, Syria, Russia, you know, there's about 12 of them. So we work with them, but one of the things they, they like me to do is to go in and like hang out with the, the, the whoever's coming in as the opposition leader, right? To determine maybe the guy coming in is worse than the, the, the tyrant they have in there now. And that usually involves 
uh, hanging around the guy, having drinks, getting kind of drunk with him, and just talking at a bar for hours, looking for the signs, right? So if you're in a case where you're, you're talking to a really smart guy or gal, and they haven't, they're not damaged, and they know what the signs are uh, for psychopathy or NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, they've learned to suppress them. And so you can go on for you know an hour or two, and they won't show you anything. And some of them go on for days, and they won't show you much of anything. So you know the typical way of looking for the tells of psychopaths is, I mean, there's some lightweight things like they, as they're talking, their hands, when they use their hands talking, they go higher and higher in front of their face. So their hands get very high. Not like talking to an Italian where the hands are like right below the chin going ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. And the hands kind of go up. Also, they use a lot of personal pronouns uh, more than the average person talking. So they, I, me, I, I, me, me. And they also talk in a funny way about their own guts. They'll, they'll talk about, they don't have a stomach ache. They'll, they'll talk about it in a, in a very graphic way or about their sex life or about, you know, things that are visceral. They, they kind of are, kind of get really explicit about it and seem quite happy about it. Not all of them do that, but that's not atypical, okay, which is to say it, it's fairly uh, typical of them if they talk long enough. And they also, you start getting a feeling, get, getting a little bit of a creepy feeling from them if you're keyed into this. Now, part of the, the danger of psychopathy are, are the people who are near psychopaths. That is, they have a lot of the pro-social traits. There are pro-social traits. Pro-social doesn't mean you're nice. It means that you have traits that allow you to navigate society without being caught. Then there are the negative traits, which make you basically an asshole. And nobody likes those. They're really antisocial. They're criminal. And even other criminals don't like them. But the positive traits, which are about half of the traits, these are things like being glib and, and being very slick uh, verbally. And I'm always asked, of course, is, is Trump a psychopath? And, and of course, no psychopaths talk like Trump. Nobody does. The people, the person with the most, I didn't vote for Trump, but the people who they talk like are people who are really smooth, like Bill Clinton has probably got the most positive and negative traits of a psychopath. I'm not saying he's a psychopath, but he's got it. It's that smooth, glib-talking guy that a lot of people really love. You know, Obama had it too. There are other presidents and leaders who have it throughout history, which is the very glib. They know they know they got the rap, and people are drawn to that. They think it's a sign of intelligence, and sometimes it is. But people, you know, you can find a street guy who's got the really cool rap, but doesn't mean he's really intelligent. But they know what to say, and they talk fast, and all that stuff. So those are positive signs, of or positive traits, because it allows you to navigate through society. And they're also very confident, uh, a, a bit too much. So they're very confident. And so these traits of being very positive uh, and really being narcissistic, you don't have to be a narcissist to be a psychopath, but they usually have this very, you know, a big sort of, uh, you know, wonderful thoughts about themselves. And it makes them confident. So a lot of people like somebody who talks well, they're glib, they talk fast, and they are also very confident. And so it turns out that the same traits that are considered pathological, uh, but they're, you know, they, they are the, the positive traits uh, or pro-social traits with psychopathy are the same ones that people consider to be leadership. And so people always wonder, why do we get so many leaders, of not just politics, but journalism uh, everywhere? Uh, why do we have these people? Well, because we like those people. We, we choose people with those traits because like, I want that guy, I want that gal on my side. 
they're really glib and they're kind of aggressive and they always seem to win things. They take chances and they win. Well, this is leadership, but it's also psychopathy. And so this confusion <clears throat> allows them to do very well in society as long as they don't have a lot of negative traits. If they have the negative traits too, then they have enough, they score enough on these psychopathy tests, like the hair test or the PPI, which is for otherwise normal people, the psychopathic personality inventory, that they score high enough that they have the traits, but not so many that they're clinically diagnosed. So somebody like me, I have the positive traits and not many of the negative traits at all. So I can get away with a lot of things. And, and, and psychopaths, especially like borderline ones with the positive traits, people let them get away with things because they can be very a lot of fun. And they seem to be charismatic, which means they walk in the room, they got that light around them, like Clinton or Obama or and I don't maybe some people think that somebody like Trump does too. I, I don't. But nonetheless, there are these consensus sort of things like this guy, did you see him? I mean, he's got like the light around him. Well, that is not only leadership, but it's usually associated with psychopaths too. So that's, that makes it hard to find them out. And in fact, for guys, you know, guys, a lot of women love this stuff, right? He's very confident, like he's cool, and he's got the rap, he's all this stuff, and he knows what he's doing, and he seems to be a winner. And women are naturally, not every woman, but a lot of women are drawn to that. So, uh, But they also will draw in uh, psychopaths. And the psychopaths, what they will tend to do is They'll engage you, and they know that, first of all, they're looking for your weaknesses. What's your problem? And, and if they really want you in some way, either to take your money or to have you sexually or just to own you for a moment, you know, or for a couple of hours, because a lot of times it never leads anywhere, but they just like to own people for the moment. And so as they're talking, at the, the, at the back of their mind, they're saying, okay, is this person, what, does this person like hate their father, their mother, they hate authority? or they feel suppressed, or they're religious, or, you know, they're always kind of digging slightly for any signs and symptoms of what bothers you emotionally. And that's what they will, they'll kind of put in their holster and use that against you to manipulate you. And that's their game. Uh, but since they're so charming, you don't see it. Now, some people will smell a rat all the time. And I, it's funny, because my wife, she always kind of complains, she goes, She's my girlfriend's. We're always hit on when we were growing up. She says, nobody ever hit me. I said, because you got a you got a sign in there. It says, you know, your sign is keep off the grass. And it's and she can really sniff out a rat. She didn't sniff out me because she knows me to be a nice guy otherwise, right? Even though she knows it can be a real jerk. And so when I start acting up, uh, either at a party or a bar, and I got people around me and I'm telling stories. She goes, you're doing that thing again. You're doing that thing. And she never really talks about it that much. And she never really wanted to do any interviews because we had had a lot of interviews here from different networks. And, and we had the BBC here twice. And in one of the BBC things, she finally said something. It's the only time she's ever said anything in any interviews. She goes, look, I'm married to two guys. So one guy is this like really fun, smart guy, kind and great, great guy to be around. He's got a lot of great friends. And he's just a kick. And he's interesting and loving and all that. And she said, I love that guy. She says, and then there's this other guy. He's this dark character I do not like at all. And so she has always known me to be that way and accepts it. Because my actual behavior is not so bad. You know what I mean? I'm a guy, but I'm, not, I'm still like within the range of, of, of acceptable guyness, I guess. But she knows who the asshole is there. And she does not like that. 
I can suppress that. I, I've learned now that I know that I might have these traits or might be close to being a psychopath, I've tried to overcome it. And I said to myself a few years ago, a couple of years ago, I said, nobody can beat psychopathy. I said, but I can do it. Because I, I just tried to use my own narcissism to say, nobody can do it, but I can do it. I'm that good at this stuff. And so I started to, uh, in every interaction with my wife, I started with my wife and for a couple of months, and I tried, I thought to myself, what would a good guy do in this specific circumstance? And a lot of it's just being a good roommate, like, you know, you pour the wine for the other person first, you pick up after yourself, regular, like being a good roommate stuff. But then it was like things like going to her aunt's funeral or my own aunt's funeral, where I'd find an excuse and I'd be down at some, I'd say, well, no, I got, I'm busy. I got to do this thing. And I'd be down at some beach bar in Newport having a party while they're at the, you know, the, at the cemetery. And so I do those things, which are not considered too nice. But so everywhere in between that, I just kept looking at all my behaviors and I found out a couple of things. First of all, after a month of this, I was completely exhausted every night. And instead of sleeping four hours a night, which I've always slept since I was maybe 17 or 18, I, instead of sleeping eight hours, I started sleeping four hours a night. But now when I was trying to do this, I started this, I was up to five and six and seven hours because I was like so exhausted from trying to be a nice guy. But after two months, she said to me spontaneously, she goes, what has come over you? I said, what are you talking about? She goes, like, you're a really nice guy now all the time. <laughs> and I, so I had to tell her, I said, don't take it seriously. I'm just, it's an experiment. I'm trying to see if I can suppress all of my urges to be a jerk and to be a nice guy. And I said, I've been watching my other friends, what they do. And they have kids and grandkids. And I noticed that they do things I don't do. And they really sacrifice themselves. So I tried to do that. And other people noticed it too. So I've been trying to fight it, but you got to think about it every day. It's like an addiction. You know, if you look at, uh, you know, anybody who has alcohol addiction or food addiction or drugs or anything in order to overcome it, the only way to do it is every day, you've got to make a conscious decision. So it's so exhausting, but it's like a lifelong thing or else, you know, in the case of an addict, they slip back into it. And that's why you know, most people who do a New Year's resolution, they're back doing the same stuff in a week. In people who are, you know, chronic sinners. And I, I was, I grew up Catholic, so we went to confession. And, you know, and I'd asked a lot of priests, but also rabbis and ministers. I said, do people always have the same sins, bad sins? They go, yes. And then it just kind of, the obvious occurred to me is that these, what people call sins, which they can be absolved in, is just psychopathy. It's the same bad shit you do all the time to people. And so, but the, the good thing about going to a confession or, you know, talking to your God is that you're absolved of it. You're forgiven for it because that's the way that system is set up. It's, it's easier and, and more comforting to say that I, I'm a sinner, uh, but I'm not going to try better than to say I'm a psychopath, you know, which is no cure for. It. It's kind of being damned, I guess. And so I try to do it by just always thinking, uh, and I, I'm still trying to do it, I'm, and I'm really succeeding, except I'm sleeping longer and longer. I'm less sort of academically successful than I was before I found this out, because I didn't sleep much. I was able to work a lot. And when people ask me, so what's the secret of your success? I, just, I, I don't sleep. Or I can, when I sleep, I get a full night's sleep and get all my REM sleep in, and, and so it, and it, it takes me two seconds of well sleep. And so I get all the sleep. But it also correlates, I think, with my ability to produce and be successful at things. So they kind of 
you know, you have these different things that people consider faults, but a lot of times they're your strengths too. And I'm sure you've heard this uh, many times, and I think it's quite true. So all those things that are like the bane of your life, you know, different conditions that you might have, things, bad things that have happened. Well, for me, I welcome these, you know, so-called bad things because in the failures, they're kind of built into how you improve yourself. And if you accept those things, it becomes very easy to fail. And it becomes very easy to take those negative things in your life and it make, make you better at it, you know? And so I, I, I do that and I did it with this too. So I'm still trying to be a nice guy. How do you, or how does someone listening defend themselves against being manipulated by a psychopath? If you engage a psychopath and, and usually it probably your listeners are successful, smart guys and gals that, and they're going to run into psychopaths or partial psychopaths, you know, pro-socials that are pretty smart too. And so if you engage them and think you're going to beat them, forget it because that's their whole game. And a lot of, a lot of psychopaths will groom people for weeks and months and even years. So they'll have a number of people they're trying to get to for different reasons, you know, women to get at or men to get at. You know, to violence to to pull over on you or or money to steal from you or just to manipulate you. And they'll have multiple be- people going at one time and they'll be grooming them. And so, and they can be very patient too. They're not all just impulsive. And so people can be setting you up for, for months, weeks and weeks, months, even years to finally get you. To, they're grooming you and they're getting you into a place where you accept, they, they trust you. And they not only trust you, they find, they'll probably be suspicious a bit. You're going to have to be a little naughty with them or something. And you get them to accept that, find it as exciting. You know, you got to go, you know, you look at all the people who follow gurus or people like Charlie Manson. He was able to read these, these, these women uh, for their hatred of their fathers and society. And everyone was able to use all that. He groomed all those gals for years. And so, and it's not that hard to do as long as the person you're talking to is pissed off at something and upset and they want to get even and now those are very easy to get to it doesn't matter how smart they are either and you get them but you so they'll be grooming you and be getting a lot of information so i mean for me when i can see somebody doing it they seem too interested in you do you know what i mean there it's like they care too much about you they, they really and some people especially women will say oh he's, he's really interested in what i'm thinking what i'm saying and you say, well, you know, actually, he's, he's, he's grooming you right now. He's acting very interested in you, unusually interested, like I've never met a boy or a man who's this interested in what I have to say. And so, and a psychopath will be able to read that need that this is somebody, this is a, like a gal who, who really doesn't feel she gets respect. And so act like a guy who really cares what she says. But while he's doing that, he's reading into what you're mad at, what your weak spots are. And so a lot of times these guys, and I can see them, I was sitting at a bar listening to them, I kind of roll my eyes, because there's always some, some guy, one guy in a bar, at least that's a real psychopath, and you can, you can hear him working on people, and they're very intensive, and they're very, you know, they try to throw in a joke, and it seems, uh, and if you, if you look at them enough, it seems like a, it's always a performance. It doesn't seem like a natural, organic conversation to me ever. It's a very, very sort of somewhat scripted interaction, and they care too much on what the young man or the young gal has to say. They're interested. They care, a little too caring. All of these things add up, and, and, you, and they really will be probing. They'll be probing for some personal information and about your family, and you 
that seems normal, right? It seems normal. It's nice to have somebody who really cares about you rather than talking about themselves all the time. But there is, at some point, there's some people that just care too much. And so the question is, what is that? Is there some threshold that's useful to say, ah, you passed the threshold, you're a psychopath, I don't want anything to do with you, walk away. Well, it's kind of like that. The best thing to do with somebody you really think is a psychopath who cares too much and gets a little, starts getting more and more a little controlling or creepy with you, you walk away. You don't try to fight it. You just walk away because that's their game and they, they love playing the game. And so you just walk away. What would be one really simple kind of quick action step or piece of homework that you would give for listeners who have been listening to this conversation and either want to maybe investigate their own psychology or, or think about ways to better understand psychopathy? Yeah, there's no really good way to do it yourself because people not only lie to themselves, but they also are too rough on themselves to say, well, I have this narcissistic trait. And they really don't. It's very mild. And they'll, and, and even if you do it with, with some friends, they'll try to be dramatic about your traits. Whereas the real trait, you know, if you score them zero, like you have none of that trait, or one, you have a bit, or two, you have the full-blown trait, uh, people tend to be a little bit too much in denial. They'll give too many zeros and too many twos, not enough ones. And, and so it's very hard um, to do this yourself. And the only way, you, you can't really tell if somebody's a psychopath by looking at their genes or their brain scans either. You have to do it by being having a formal, structured, unstructured interview with a psychologist or a psychiatrist who knows personality disorders. That's the only way to do it. There are people who take online tests like the Levinson, and the PPI, or the hair test, if they get a hold of it. And they take these tests online, but they really doesn't, it doesn't work too well because some people want to be it. They think it's like cool to be a psychopath. It's not, it's not so cool to be a psychopath, but they'll, they'll think it is. So they'll be scoring themselves heavily like, you know, I'm really almost there, where they're really not. Whereas the real psychopath will will hide it, you know, they'll probably suppress it, and they and they'll, they'll they'll kind of force it to be a lower number because they don't want to be found out, you know, to themselves either. So there, it's very difficult to do it yourself. And I had been working around them and, and worked in the field, and I didn't even know it myself, and you know what I had, and I, I should have been completely aware. And in fact, the psychiatrists around me had told me for years. They said, "We've been telling you you're a borderline psychopath. You never listen." I said, I thought you were saying I was crazy. They said, you're not crazy. We didn't say you're crazy. They said, you have psychopathic traits and you're a pain in the ass, man. You just do things that are like that. I just didn't listen to it. You know, I heard it as I wanted to hear it. And so I was certainly in denial. I don't like having this, you know, I'm a father and a grandfather. And, and it's not so great because it's, you know, they have to live with that. The only good thing is I've never done anything. You know, I don't have a record or anything. So I'm kind of like a just a, you know, some sort of like uh, animal at a zoo, I guess, a bit. So they don't really mind. It's a weird game to play because it can affect some kids and you got to watch it. But I, the answer to your question is the only way to do it is to go to a psychologist who knows like adult psychopathy and adult personality disorders. And it's going to cost some money to do it. You really can't do it with an online test. So that's the answer you did not want, Matt. No, that's still very helpful. And for listeners who want to find you and your work and your writing online, what's the best place for them to do that? If you just put, if you type in James Fallon, psychopathy, you'll see my puss all over the place, too, unfortunately, but either in the videos, because I've given a lot of talks, so you can probably find about 50 videos of different talks I've given, 
So it's, it's James H. Fallon, but if you just, James Fallon, psychopath seems to pull up a lot of stuff. And that's one way to do it. People can also contact me. I don't respond to phone calls at all because I just, you know, you got to stop somewhere or text. But I, you know, people email me with real questions and I try to answer them. I have a book that's I still, I guess, pretty relevant because the sales are still quite good on it. And that's the psychopath inside. But I also, we do other research too. And so we've got, even though I'm kind of semi-retired because I shut my labs down, I still do research with my all my collaborators, so uh, we do other research too. So if you want to look up what kind of work I'm doing, you, you look in PubMed, P-U-B-M-E-D, uh, and you just put in James H. Fallon. My papers will come up on other you know real research I'm doing. Well, Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your incredible and wild personal story and all the lessons that you've learned from the fascinating research that you've done. My pleasure, Matt. You made it easy for me, too. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Success.